Friends, welcome to Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Word on Fire is an apostolate dedicated to the mission of evangelization, using media both old and new to share the faith on every continent and to facilitate an encounter with Christ and His Church. The efforts of Word on Fire engage the culture and bring the transformative power of God's Word where it is most needed. Today, we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each one of us. Peace be with you. Friends, if you've been following these sermons of mine the past couple months, you know I've been focusing very much on the first readings, you know, coming up out of the Old Testament, because I think we Catholics especially aren't that great at understanding the Old Testament. So today I'm going to look at... uh, this marvelous passage from the book of the prophet Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel, one of the four major prophets, along with Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel, also one of the most theologically profound and one of the most mysterious of the prophets. In fact, ancient Israel had an adage that one should not even approach Ezekiel till you're about 50. (laughs) They thought prior to that, you just didn't have what it takes to read a text as complex as this one. So we'll be reading from Ezekiel today, and the passage is from the 18th chapter. Now, I think the 18th chapter of Ezekiel represents a real breakthrough in the consciousness of the West. You know, I'm a student of philosophy, and, and you look at people like Socrates and Plato and so on, who did indeed represent great breakthroughs or kind of watershed figures. But mind you, they're operating around the year 400 B.C., Ezekiel, we're talking about 590, 580 BC, nearly 200 years before Socrates and Plato, this figure is operating and writing. And I think this chapter 18, I recommend, by the way, get your Bibles out and just read that 18th chapter, does represent a very important breakthrough. Now, let me explain what I mean. Our passage today, or rather the chapter uh, commences with a rehearsal of a proverb that was evidently popular among the ancient Israelites. Here's the proverb. The parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. (laughs) See what that means? The parents eat the sour grapes, but the children suffer for it. The implication seems to be that the children and grandchildren and descendants of those who have done wicked things are punished for the wickedness of their forebearers. But see, here's Ezekiel's point. God is having none of that. Listen, as I live, says the Lord God, this proverb shall no longer be used in Israel. It's very interesting now. It's very interesting. See, ancient Israel, like like most ancient peoples, thought not so much in terms of the individual. See, and we're on the far side of that divide. I mean, we, we are so characterized by individualism that we probably need a little balancing. But see, these people tended to think that your family identity, your tribal identity, your national identity was more important than you. And so they had no trouble thinking, yeah, if someone sinned way back then, of course his descendants are implicated because It's your tribe. It's your family. matters more than you. But Ezekiel's saying, and I think it's a breakthrough, God says, no, no, that won't work. Listen now to what he says. 
as he channels the words of the Lord. Know that all lives are mine, the life of the parent, as well as the life of the child. But it is only the person who sins that shall die. And he spells this out now in some detail. Listen, if there is a person who has done all things well, it's been righteous, I'm quoting now, but whose son is violent, a shedder of blood, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor, lifts up eyes to idols, shall he then live? He shall not. You see, his point there is the son who's wicked can't wrap himself in the mantle of his father's uh, virtue. If you're thinking purely in, in tribal terms, yeah, okay, maybe, hey, I'm, I'm still benefiting from what my great-grandfather did. No, says the Lord, I know both the father and the son. And the wickedness of one belongs to him. The virtue of the other belongs to him. Here's how he spells out the other side. No virtuous son shall suffer for the wickedness of his father. Here's the Lord speaking now. A child shall not suffer for the iniquity of a parent, nor a parent suffer for the iniquity of a child. The righteousness of the righteous shall be his own. The wickedness of the wicked shall be his own. Here, I think, is what the prophet Ezekiel, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, is helping us to see. Though family identity is real, no one's denying that, tribal identity, uh, our, our sense of belonging to something bigger than ourselves, yes, that's all true. More to it, and though our moral acts always have implications, that's also true. You know, they can have negative impact on people that come after us. That's certainly true. Nevertheless, nevertheless, in the moral act, the individual gathers himself, defines his character, stands in a very real and important sense alone in the presence of God. Let me say that again. In the moral act, I gather myself. I define my character. I stand on my own two feet in the presence of God. Again, these acts take place in the real world. Yeah, influenced by family, culture, society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that's true. Nevertheless, I show God and the world who I am in the quality and integrity of my moral acts. You know, can I put my philosopher's hat on just for a second? Um, again, St. Thomas Aquinas always comes through in a pinch with the pithy distinction. Thomas distinguishes between what he calls an actus hominis and an actus humanus. What's an actus hominis? That means an act of a man. So let's say I sneeze. <laughs> That's an act of a man. But it's not a human act. What do I mean? Well, it's not an act by which I am gathering and consciously defining myself. It's, a, it's an instinctual reaction. Or someone comes up and, and they startle me and I, and I jump. Well, that's an actus hominis, an act of a man, but not an actus humanus. An actus humanus, a human act, involves the full engagement of the mind. I know what I'm seeking. I know the nature of this and the full engagement of the will. I choose. I decide. 
Now, both those things, mind and will, influenced by forces outside, sure they are, of course they are. But nevertheless, at that decisive moment, when I gather myself, knowing what I'm doing, choosing it consciously, in that great actus humanus, in that great human act, I stand before God. I stand on my own two feet. And I define my character. You know, it comes to mind here, too, and I, I reference my favorite movie, Man for All Seasons, a lot. The great uh, St. Thomas More, when he's up against the pressure of King Henry VIII to give in, as everyone, all the, all the uh, leaders of that society had given in. And More is talking to his best friend, Norfolk. And Norfolk's trying to persuade him, you know, like, Thomas, come on, we've all given in. And More says, in regard to his own convictions, but it's that I believe it. Then he says, no, but rather no, not that I believe it, but that I believe it. And see, in some ways, that's the, the fulcrum on which that whole movie turns. Not that I believe it, but that I believe it. More at that moment was summing up his whole life, defining who he was, not wrapping himself in the mantle of his, of his virtuous predecessors, not suffering from the wickedness of his friends around him. But at that moment, fully engaging mind and will, engaging in an actus humanus, that I believe it. Now we know who he is. Now we know where he stands. Here's something from the philosopher Dietrich von Hildebrand, who loved the three transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful, right? Von Hildebrand said, you know, look, truth, wonderful. Every philosopher seeks it. What a wonderful thing if you're educated and you learn to read books and to think deeply and to entertain, you know, high ideas. But we would say if someone were incapable of that, let's say they, they weren't that intelligent, they weren't well-educated, they weren't given access to books, etc., we'd say, well, that's, that's sad. That's unfortunate. Or let's say the beautiful, someone with a great aesthetic sensibility. You know, they, they appreciate fine art. They can even create fine art. How wonderful, Michelangelo and so on. And if someone were deprived of that, they never got an aesthetic education, they, they had a talent that was never cultivated, we'd certainly say that's, that's a sadness. But in regard to the good, in regard to the good, to the morally upright, if someone's incapable of that, they fail in that regard. We don't just say how sad. We say that that's a calamity, that that's a tragedy. We're not going to we're not going to uh, you know morally blame someone that doesn't become a great philosopher or a great artist, but we are going to morally blame someone who doesn't cultivate the moral dimension of his life. What von Hildebrand shows there is the primacy of the good, the primacy of the moral, and in light of Ezekiel, how it's the moral act that defines who I am. Just one more uh, reference to another hero of mine, namely St. John Paul II. So Karl Wojtyla, you know, was a great moral philosopher. That was his area of, uh, of expertise. And he said this in his moral writings. Every time we perform a moral act, we make a moral decision, we do two things. One is we, we affect the world in a particular way. We, we do this. We move in that direction. We, we uh, uh, take this action. 
But then Wojtyla said, in a deeper way, we also are creating the person we are becoming. Let's think about that. There's a direct line, it seems to me, from Ezekiel to John Paul II. When I make a moral decision, now, now mind you, I'm not talking about my decision to you know, watch the baseball game or watch a movie. I mean, that's a decision, but not a morally important decision. I decide to have a ham sandwich or a turkey sandwich. That isn't a morally relevant decision. But in the presence of a moral choice, knowing full well what's at stake, fully engaging my will, when I do that sort of act, I perform that kind of act, I'm defining the character that I'm becoming. Think of every moral act. This is a Wojtyla idea. It's like a, a little brick in the wall. And with each one of those acts, I'm building up the edifice of my own character. And keep that in mind, everybody. That's a very important idea. Again, I'm not talking, you know, movie versus baseball game. I mean, every time in the course of the day when you take a moral decision, you're not, you're not wrapping yourself in the mantle of your grandparents. You're not, you're not uh, suffering because of what your children might be doing. But at that moment, you are standing in a self-defining way in the presence of God. I think Ezekiel chapter 18 represents a great breakthrough in consciousness. Now come all the way up through Thomas More, all the way to St. John Paul II. And keep that in mind as you're moving through your day and you're making moral choice after moral choice. You're affecting your world. You're also defining the person you are becoming. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.